G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's A Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs as well as CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if you may miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or CFRC Podcasts. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Evelyn Parry, who is doing a Master's in Cultural Studies under the supervision of Drs. Laura Murray and Matt Rogalski. Welcome to Grad Chat, Evelyn. Hi, nice to be here. It's great to have you. And just for everyone know, the reason I asked Evelyn to come on the show is, one, I wanted to hear about her research, but she was also part of what was called the Bell Park Project here in Kingston. And I think actually we've got way too much information. So if you don't mind, Evelyn, we might have to split this into two sessions, two episodes. So we'll do the first one about your research. And well, I'll have to ask you to come back and do part two, which will be about your Bell Park Project, if that is okay. Yeah, of course. That sounds great. Excellent. So with that in mind, can you give us a bit of a background about yourself and what brought you to Queen's to do your master's in cultural studies? Sure. Yeah, that might be a little bit of a long question, actually, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a theater artist. Time, as I said. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm a theater artist and a songwriter with a pretty long practice professionally in this multidisciplinary kind of area. The last chapter of my career was as artistic director of Buddies in Bad Times Theatre in Toronto, which is a queer theatre company with a long 40-year history and a large venue downtown. And it was a, a very significant chapter of my career in theatre. I've, you know, prior to becoming artistic director there, I'd done a lot of uh, performing and directing often writing and performing my own material. So I'd had a long career in that way. And then taking on this arts leadership position was a huge learning curve, a really, you know, amazing learning experience. And when I left, which was during the pandemic in 2020, I was definitely left with a feeling of like that. It was a five-year, like just an immensely intense five-year chapter intense kind of right. in terms of the learning that was happening, intense in terms of what was happening in the world during that time between 2015 and 2020 and all the social changes that were happening and the way that that was impacting the theater. And it was the middle of the pandemic and I was in a bit of a moment of like, what, what, what will I do next? And I had always wanted to go back to school. I did my undergrad many years ago in theater wow at Concordia University. And I'd always just sort of had this idea in my back, the back of my mind of like, it would be interesting to go back to do graduate work. And I would want to study something other than theater to inform my practice, not because I wanted to, you know, change disciplines in my practice, but more to inform my practice. So cultural studies... Right. I was doing some preliminary research about programs and cultural studies when I saw the description of it really spoke to me in terms of its combination of being an interdisciplinary program that was welcoming students to do research creation and also that it had a social justice focus. It felt, it just felt very aligned in terms of 
the possibilities for it. And mm-hmm. so I applied and then that so began. You got in. <laughs> yeah, I got in. And then, and actually interesting, like on a personal life note, my wife was really interested in leaving Toronto, moving out of town and being somewhere smaller. Right. And that was a bit closer to family for her. And so we actually made the move to the area during my second year. My first year was kind of, you know, still very pandemic. Um, like half my courses were online, et cetera. So I was commuting once in a while when I, when we were in person, but a lot of that, the first year was online anyway. So that's, that's a bit of a long story as to how I wound up here. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a good story because I always find it interesting to see why either why people came back to do further education or why they just continued straight on from undergrad and I actually find it more fascinating those who have been out in I hate to use the word real world and and then come found a reason to come back and more often than not it is a, a passion to learn a little bit more or to study something different or have something that you can build on moving forward as well so yeah it's great to come back on this yeah for me it was like definitely a feeling of while I was inside that job and that leadership position I had no time for reading there's always so much you know there's always more than one can ever spend time reading to read but but there was a very strong feeling of like uh I I liken being the leader of an arts organization like that a little bit to being like a firefighter. Like you just have your hose out all the time and you're just basically like (laughs) constantly fighting fires. And like, you're lucky when it's a a good day and there's like not some crisis that you're dealing with or so anyway, there was a, a real sense of like the luxury would be to get to do some of the reading, to understand what like give give more context to some of what I had been living and doing Mm -hmm. to kind of get that theoretical piece which certainly yeah and I think that's and I think that's important in any job that we do is it's good to have the the theory behind and then you go out and use that plus experiences to make the job a better a better job as opposed to doing one or just having one or the other that's right but then being able to combine it one of the things that I've definitely learned in my research that was interesting I had a hunch that this was true and then it was really confirmed very early on was how little training there is education-wise, like formal or even literature in terms of training people for arts leadership. It's really a field that people learn on the job Hmm. for a variety of reasons. And And that's why, well, that's why we're lucky that we have the arts leadership program now at Queen's. And I think it's probably come from that because we do, you do need a bit more help in working out how to, how to move that forward. Yeah, I think a new generation in the, the respective field. Leaders, yeah, the new mm-hmm. generation of arts leaders definitely have access to some forms like the Queen's program and and others around the country. But like in the generation that I came up in, tr- being trained as an artist, like those programs didn't really exist. No, you just taught yourself, really, didn't you, as you went along? That's right. right. (laughs) So so let's get on to your your research then, because it really is fascinating. It's around arts leadership, creative practice and cultural change. And uh, I think if I've got this correctly, it's uh, distant early warnings, arts leadership and creative practice in unsettled times. Can you just give us a bit of a 
quick overview on that and then we can sort of dig a little bit deeper and I know depending on how you explain this there's some other bits and pieces that I'd like to add i.e just as a heads up everyone a song that we're going to talk <laughs> yeah, <that's> about right. <laughs> well that's right because yeah songwriting was one of my research methodologies that I employed in this research so distant early warnings is, a, is which is part of the title of my thesis project is a reference to Marshall McLuhan. And I wound up using a kind of central, a, a quote from McLuhan that becomes a central metaphor and idea that I'm threading through my research into the connections between artistic practice and arts leadership and social and cultural change. Threading this McLuhan idea through the work, quote, is that at its most significant Art is a distant early warning system telling the old culture what is beginning to happen to it. So with this idea, it's a kind of idea of art and artists as harbingers or vanguards, mm -hmm. you know, where the change that's coming in the, in the overculture or the mainstream starts and is often indicated or given like flares, <laughs> warning signals from art and artists who function kind of as antennas for the more subtle signs of how culture is changing. And so looking to art and artists for those signals is a way that we can like actually, yeah, see what's, see what's coming, see what's rumbling. And because he, he also, sorry, if I don't mind, he also ahead. used a term called um, the medium is the message. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So this this medium then, of course, is the is the art form. Yes, that's right. Yeah, of course, that's like McLuhan's sort of most famous aphorism. And I don't really take up that particular idea in the thesis very directly, but it was certainly an influence because I'm always, as a theater artist, I'm always thinking about how the medium is the message and like how form and content are amplifying each other or, or you know, uh, revealing each other and in conversation with each other. I think that's such a central idea of art making and my own practice. Mm -hmm. And also it has lots of extensions of just like the object of my research, or it, it was a kind of auto-theoretical project combining more critical theory with memoir in a sense, or like looking back at my own experience right. of leadership at Buddies. And so putting that into conversation with a bunch of theorists, including McLuhan and more contemporary, he, he was kind of a, a bit of a curveball actually to throw him in the mix. Cause really I'm looking more at feminist and queer theorists like Sarah right. Ahmed and Jose Esteban Munoz and Anyway, some more contemporary performance and feminist and cultural theorists. And McLuhan just provided this amazing metaphor right. that, that I couldn't resist. And so then it, it meant that I, you know, took a deeper dive into his research. And actually, I, I found a lot of fascinating ways, although like we can't cite McLuhan as a feminist or it's, you know, like there's, there's lots of... Um, for a contemporary queer feminist reader, like you encounter a lot of challenges in McLuhan's work because of some of the context of his time. Like we can certainly chalk it up yes. to that. Uh, the frames of his work are not particularly progressive in terms of gender or racial or, you know, progressive ways of theorizing. But that being said, 
he really did provide a lot of in in his own day he was so much hailed as you know a seer of the future like the inventor of the internet or the the man who anticipated the internet and some of some of the ways that he was thinking about networks and about the extension of the human nervous system about electronic media like you read his work from the 1960s and 70s and it is like he's describing the technology that we today in the 21st century are living inside of. So that's a really, right. like, it's it's really neat. And it actually had a lot of bearing on my research. It surprised me and, and became more clear as I got deeper into it because so much of what the culture change that was happening while I was at Buddies in Bad Times Theater, dealing with sort of like theater making and queer culture and the changes happening in those two arenas and how they sit together at that theater had everything to do with internet, like the influence on how the internet and social media has impacted social movements and progressive social movements. And McLuhan back in the 60s was talking a lot about tribalism and the way that electronic media would affect people to become more quote unquote tribal in the end. He's really like very much describing things that to me I read as culture wars and the kind of way divisions between left and right that are becoming so complicated and divisive and confusing in some ways. And that was part of what I was seeing begin to unravel at Buddies while I was there and looking at the way that, uh, that, that certain controversies around free speech played out and that divided like an older generation of queer people from a younger upcoming generation of queer trans folks. And I felt myself very much as this kind of bridge generation between this new upcoming and this old guard and the tensions between those. So there was inside of that a lot to unpack and, and think about. Yeah. So Let's so, see. so with that then, because yeah. it looks like you, there's a lot to talk about, and yes. yet you're doing it in six. But you're doing it in six chapters and three songs. That's right. Yeah. And I don't know how long each chapter is, but sometimes I know this is a master's program. This is a master's. I mean, it should be a PhD, probably. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, I think you probably could, because I mean, how can you put all your thoughts into just six six chapters and three songs? And we should talk about the songs in a minute too. Yeah, no, I just wanted to bring that on the question that I was wrestling with for many months of like, how does (laughs) I I I kept having this frustrating feeling, which I'm sure is shared by so many graduate students, but I, I basically was like how can I have written 70 pages and still feel like I left everything out? Like everything important yeah. is here. But like I've managed to, you know, figure out a few important things to say and then so many things get left behind and aren't able to make it into this document, but they're part of the background. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So is each chapter a specific theme or, or that each chapter is based around some of the songs that you've written? No, the chapters are not really based around the songs per se. They're a little bit more oblique than that uh, in there, or some of them are, but it's it feels like it's a connected. So some of the chapters are more engaged with theory and methodology. So thinking about my songwriting right. methodology 
also unpacking ideas of like, what do we mean in the performing arts when we're talking about decolonization and decolonial thought right. and what does this mean and how is this impacting my analysis of the milieu that I was in and some of the challenges. And so, yeah, several of the chapters really are, are like a little bit more engaged with thinking through theory in that way. And then there's, I would say the center of the piece is a long chapter that is about one instance that had to do with a conflict that arose in 2018 with the founder of the theater. Conflict that centered around his claim of being censored and of that his freedom of speech was being curtailed by the theater because yeah. of something that he published and then a reading that he was supposed to do at the theater that we canceled in because of this piece that he published, we put a pause on the reading and said, we need to have a community conversation. And it became a really contentious, huge right. blow up that in a sense never really got resolved per se. We did have a really an amazing community conversation because the thing about the conflict and I guess this is why I bring it into the thesis, was to me, it represented so much of what was going on at that time, first of all, in the queer community, about this intergenerational div division or this generational division. And, and that had been playing out prior to this event in other ways in Toronto around, you know, it had come to the fore a couple of years previous in terms of at the Toronto Pride Parade, the Black Lives Matter folks, they led the parade in 2016. They had a position of honor in the parade and did an action that spoke out against police in the pride parade. And it became a very contentious, very divisive arguments arose based on this kind of amazing right. action that they did that stopped the parade and asked the pride Toronto to like, meet a bunch of demands and it was very much in the tradition of like the politics of pride and the people in the street and right. it was uh, in my opinion a, a a really incredible action that they took on and an important a very important conversation that really divided the communities that make up the, the queer community in toronto it's not one monolithic community but many many communities so anyway, some of the like the ripples of that around racism in the in the queer community and a division between sort of older gay white men who generationally like lived through the trauma of AIDS in the 80s and right. 90s and perhaps still have a sense of an identity as an oppressed group and a lot of unprocessed trauma around the horrific mm -hmm. losses Treatment. and yeah, lack of humanity <laughs> that they were granted, yeah. you know, at that time. So, so that big piece of like a new generation that don't necessarily have that connection to that history and are also coming right. up with like a much different understanding of like intersectional oppressions and power mm -hmm. and lots more diversity in terms of both cultural and racial identities and also gender identities and, you know, expressing themselves in all the ways that like a new generation is supposed to express themselves, which is often, yes. <laughs> often challenging what has come before them. And so that has been the case very much in the queer community and, but has 
really led to some very difficult sense because it's inside of a mart, you know, already like marginalized communities, then you have this kind of infighting and lateral violence that mm-hmm. can be very damaging and very, like very difficult to hold because it's funny. There was, there was a sense that I even had stepping into this role of leadership at Buddies, which is, you know, by all accounts, a very under-resourced and very, a, a theater that sits at a very interesting place, kind of on the margins. It's theater, first of all. Theater is kind of on the margins, unless you're doing like Hamilton on Broadway, like almost all other theater in some way, it's like, it's not my mainstream entertainment, right? It's not, it's no, not. It's fringe. Mm-hmm. It's fringe. Even if you're not in the fringe festival, like it's, yeah. it's a, <laughs> Yeah. So you have theater to begin with, and then you have a queer theater with a queer mandate to like support the LGBTQIA2S, uh, all the communities that fall under this umbrella of queerness in the 21st century, and a mandate to like uplift and support those and center those voices and those stories. And you have a building in downtown Toronto that is right in the gay village and is in heavy demand you know, like as a, as a cultural space. And so anyway, stepping into this uh, role as artistic director, one of the interesting things that I encountered right away was this feeling like that you step into a kind of power that people endow you with, like that the role is endowed with this power and resulted in me feeling like, wait a second, I'm not the man. Stop treating me like the man. Like I'm not the man, (laughs) but yeah, you're in the, It's a kind of confusing thing, especially in that community, because, you know, it's like the power is relative. It's true. It is power. Definitely it is power within its milieu. Let me me ask you another question, because the other part of your thesis is is these songs. Mm -hmm. And you've written three songs to go as part of your study, which, you know, like you said before, this is you've used this different format of writing a thesis. It's not all words. It's you can use the creative side, so you use songs. Right. What made you want to use songs and your own written songs as mm. part of your thesis? Well, I have, like I said, songwriting has been part of my practice before, so this wasn't like mm. a new idea for me to use songs, but it was a new way. I guess I was excited to think about songwriting as research and to think about like, how could song, the way my, my method of writing songs, how could it be applied to this learning and unpacking and, you know, putting, to tell a story, to tell a story. Yeah, exactly. So it felt like, honestly, it felt like kind of a fun way to be able to apply my research or use or you know uh, apply my artistic practice to this project it and it felt also like to return to earlier to our conversation of like the medium is the message it felt a bit like right it makes sense to me to use the practice that i have to talk about the way that my creative practice and my leadership were connected to a moment of social change so like looking at the meta-ness of that, you know, of like, okay, we have to use the tool that I'm talking about too, to like weave that in. And I think, and I think that is great because I think one, one of the questions that you sort of put forward to me to say is what do you see the wider applications for this method to other areas of research? And I don't know about other people. I retain information more if it's in song or theater or or theater or something like that, as opposed to just reading. That's right. Well, that was like, okay, the, I mean, I think the first 
like I'd never previous to coming to grad school, I'd never thought of writing my songs as research in that way. It was just my songwriting. But in my first semester of cultural studies, where I literally felt like my brain was broken, where I was like, what is all this vocabulary that I do not understand? Like, I thought I was a well-read human, but apparently I know nothing. <laughs> so I was struggling to like figure out all the terminology of graduate school and of cultural studies. And as literally as a survival mechanism, I started writing a little song that felt to me like I started to describe it as like a kid song for graduate school. Cause I was like, it has, it's a mnemonic device. It's to help me remember terms that right. I'm struggling. And I think maybe you'll play one of the songs that's um, called. Epistemic yes. That's the epistemic disobedience. Yes. We will. We'll maybe we'll just play that right now and then let's okay. talk a little bit more about it. Okay. Perfect. Epistemic Disobedience is a way of saying no, of refusing to accept the accepted ways of knowing what you know. And if the words epistemic disobedience are causing your mind to bend, take a moment to unravel and to try to understand how do you know what you know? 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 Epistemology, 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 epistemology. Historiography and historicity are words that you will learn. And the differences between them are important to discern. Historiography is the study of the writing of history. Well, historicity concerns itself with historical authenticity. Who writes the record? Who writes the record? Who writes the record? And what about the record that isn't written? Historiography and historicity, epistemology, all this vocabulary. What is it for? What is it for? Should I keep talking or shut the front door? What is it for? Hey, what is it for? Should I keep talking or shut the front door? Here's another distinction. Method versus methodology. It is hard not to get these words confused, not to use them interchangeably. Methods are the tools you use, your techniques or your research strategies. Well, the theoretical framework through which you analyze your research, that is your methodology. Methodology, did I get it right? Methods versus methodology, did I mix them up? Practice versus praxis, now here's where it gets complex. One of these words is spelled with a C and the other word is spelled with an X. Practice is repetition of a skill or a given activity. Well, praxis is the practical application of your learning, the synthesis of practice and theory. Practice, praxis, method, methodology. Creation can be research when you sing your theory. Modernity, coloniality, and decoloniality. When joined together with a forward slash can become one word instead of three. This one word reveals these concepts usually considered separately, should not, in fact, be disconnected. They are fundamentally entwined. No modernity without coloniality. No decoloniality without modernity. 
a modernity slash coloniality slash decoloniality. Walter Mignolo makes one word of three. Walter D. Mignolo, you inspired this song while you and also others. Please see my bibliography, which is extremely long. Citation is acknowledgement of where you got your knowledge from. Therefore, at this juncture, I must acknowledge my dad and my mom. With a footnote to say from them, I learned that music builds community, and also that folk songs are a form of oral historiography. Who sings the record? Who will sing the record? Who sings the record? And what about the records that are unsung? Oh, historicity, historiography, oh, complicity. Who else should be included in your bibliography? Bibliography. What do your sources say? Who gets all the credit? Whose voice is erased along the way? Epistemic disobedience is a way of saying no, of refusing to accept the accepted ways of knowing what you know. And if the words epistemic disobedience are causing your mind to bend, take a moment to unravel and to try to comprehend how do you know what you know? 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 Epistemology, 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 epistemology. How do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? So I love that because, like you said, uh, you know, there's some rhyming in there, and, it's, and I'm a big one too. If there's something that's rhyming, it, it's easier for me to remember. That's right. So that was fascinating. If, if just all that terminology, you know, as you said, academic terminology. How do yes. we differentiate words that seem so similar but aren't? Yes. Yeah. So it, explain it, that it, a little it, bit more. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it really was. The, the fun of this song, I think, is that I really wrote it in a personal way to help me remember. I was really strong. I was like, epistemic disobedience. Okay, this term is driving yes. me crazy. Like, what what does it mean? I need to unpack it. And so for me, I think like a difference that I have realized about songwriting and academic writing is in a, in a sense, like the thing about academic theory, it, what you're encouraged to do is like unpack and unpack and unpack and unpack and unpack. And so it's like the longer, the better, like the more sentences, the like, you know, you don't want to leave any stone unturned. And so there's a kind of lengthiness often to mm-hmm. theoretical explanations where songwriting relies on things being really pithy and really succinct and really compact. And so I think it was a way for me to apply my own practice as a songwriter, but try and be like, okay, can I distill this, this 12 page paper into a sentence or like into a line of a song so I can remember what the hell I'm talking about when I have to make a presentation right. about it or whatever next week. <laughs> so and I kept adding. So the, the first, the first verse kind of came and then sequentially as the weeks went by and we introduced new concepts and I was struggling with new, you know, other concepts. What's the difference between method and methodology? Like what's this praxis word? What's the difference between that? Yes. The one of my favorite 
things that are, you know, that I'm kind of being silly about in the song, but like this idea of um, modernity, coloniality, and decoloniality as one word mm -hmm. slashes in between to make one word in order to consider this concept. Anyway, like I tried to just like shove a lot of the things that I found interesting or kind of funny or kind of perplexing. And so it's a chance to like turn them around in your head, but then you remember them, like you said, because they rhyme and because there's rhythm and because there's like a sense of playful, like turning the language over it's a way actually for me to learn it. But then I realized, and then the nice, like the nice turn for me was to realize, oh, this is helpful for other people too. This is a way that I can actually mobilize this knowledge. Like I can learn it and I can share it as a learning tool for other people. A learning tool. And hopefully entertainment also, but both. Well, it was. Well, I, but I, one thing I must admit, Evelyn, I found it interesting that you've used that song as part of your thesis the other two one was called uh, hungry ghosts which is talking about organizational leadership nothing is enough think they have felt this is the notes that i wrote after listening yeah. to it think that they have felt why not do things differently failing can be a sign of queerness to me totally relates to what you you did as you as you're in your leadership role yes. and your your background and likewise the uh, feminist ears the other one to hear with a feminist ears, to hear who is not heard. Again, I can see how that relates to your background. And But I was just wondering, how does the epistemic disobedience, which is talking more about what it's like to be, or, or the terminology you need to understand as a grad student, how does that fit into your thesis? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. And I, I wrestled with whether I would include that song in the thesis or not, because like I, I had a similar feeling of like, oh, this kind of sits outside of, it's like not directly related to my subject matter. And the reason I did decide to include it was once I, a, a key into my research was discovering this term called auto theory. And in, in starting to understand auto theory as a way that like the writer brings themselves into conversation with theory and is using their own experience um, as something to be analyzed in the way that we, you know, analyze other texts. Analyze. And sometimes also in, uh, I think a common piece of auto theory or auto theory is like something employed often by artists and artist academics and people making artwork. Like that's another layer. So this song felt to me like it fit in that vein of like, it's, and in part because it comes down to the personal too at the end of the song in right. sort of engaging this lineage of like my actual like inheritance from my parents was around song and folk song and right. how ideas get passed through song and what is written down in the formal records and what is not written down in the formal records and the songs that get passed much like, you know, a queer theater company, like deals in this ephemerality of live performance. And it's a kind of, there's never resources for making a fancy archive or record or feeling like the, the, the records in so much of just being interested in the way that song can contribute to the record. And right. so again, it's like this meta turn of feeling like, so what I'm, contributing and what I imagine with this thesis, like I imagine 
not that many people will read the words of the 70 page paper, but a lot of people will wind up hearing the song, the Hungry Ghost song, which is kind of right. the same record of the thesis. They're not one in the right. same, like, but they are very connected and overlapping. And then the feminist ear is kind of like the theory piece that goes behind that of, um, and it's that song takes up a Sarah Ahmed quote or two short Sarah yes. Ahmed quotes and puts them into, to, puts them to music and has them kind of sung in counterpoint. So the epistemic disobedience, that third song, it's kind of like the more meta thing of like, who sings the record and is the, is the sung record right. given, can we give that our does it have does it have the same kind of weight can it be given weight as a record as an important record right. as, a, as a cultural artifact as a way of remembering and knowing and doing and learning and thinking as much as so so, That's so when you bring these well and that, that was a very good explanation so when you bring these songs into your thesis do you Prefacism, is that the word, the one before, or describe why you're putting these particular songs in? To some extent, yes. Or is it just here it is? It's a bit of here it is, but I do spend a chapter at the end talking about my methodology. So yeah, I'm, I do give, I do give the reasons context, behind, yeah, context. The reasons behind, like the how I went about writing them and ideas. One thing that all three of these songs, well, there's a layer that you don't hear in the recordings, but part of my thesis is written sheet music with these songs arranged for a choir. So they're okay. arranged for multiple voices to sing. And that was my idea behind that was a kind of trying to take a personal experience and explode it out and like put it into the mouths of more people part of what I think one of the important findings for me in this the research about arts leadership and about some of the experience that I went through personally, the research revealed like, you're not alone. This is not, these struggles you were going through, the, this is the struggle of our time. Like so many people are struggling in different ways, in different situations, in different organizations and not-for-profits, whether they're right. arts-based or they're, you know, other charitable organizations. Like these are themes that are the themes of our time. And so there was a, a desire to try and, like for me, there was like a piece of kind of emotional learning that was about learning that thing and like understanding that I, that it wasn't about me right. only that it was like, these are, yeah, this is what, so that, that was a motivation for putting this into multiple voices and putting it into a choral arrangement felt like a fun, again, sort of meta way to allow a reader or a listener to think about things differently and to hear things in a different way, not that's just right. a solo voice. And I'm thinking that's, about that's brilliant. I'm thinking about, you know, collectivity and this shift in like one of the main uh, things that I come back to in my research over and over is this shift from the sort of leader, hero leader as singular artistic genius who it, it, who's celebrated and sort of put on a pedestal and also like given power, but also isolated in that way. And thinking about wow. the shift with a new generation and a kind of in keeping with this, in fact, like networked internet age, a very collective 
new structures and like mm-hmm. that thinking about how leadership is evolving in that way too and how in the arts in particular like how are we or are we not thinking about decentering that singular heroic leader and trying right. to think about acknowledging not only like finding new structures to share work differently and um center you know give especially shift away from this like white male leader that is had so much traditionally had so much power in the arts as with so many areas of society um how do we include more voices and perspectives well you know evelyn you've given us a lot to think about and if it's okay on the on the podcast i will add the link to your oh, yeah, songs perfect. is that yep. okay are you yeah, is that allowed yeah, to be public. done yep yep yep, yep they're public because i think it'd be interesting for people to to hear those um yeah. and and see exactly where you're going with this because they they are fascinating as well and of course there's so many more questions i would love to ask but we've run out of time so as i said earlier i hope you will come back for part two who knows me i have to do a part three <laughs> there's so much we can talk about but hopefully you will come back and, and i'm sure everyone will really appreciate listening so thank you so much for coming on the show oh it's my pleasure thanks for the questions that's great oh you, you're very welcome like i said i'm loving loving hearing all of this so that's it everyone another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end don't forget you can download this show tomorrow from either itunes google podcast spotify and cfrc podcast just type in a grad chat until next week this is cj the dj signing off with a big hooray for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.